All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 49 of Going Live with Good Soil. Uh, what a what a week. Uh, personally, I, I just went on a, a three-day, two-night rafting trip, uh, which was pretty incredible. No internet connection from uh, Wednesday to Friday last week. and uh, but, but it was incredible. Whitewater rafting on the Tuolami River in California here. It was Pretty incredible. Saw a, a rattlesnake that got a little too close to me, but uh, other than wow. that, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, great time. Yeah, how was your? Uh, how's, how's everything going for you, man? I missed uh, some ups and downs. It looks like a big down day on Friday, but um, yeah, you know. no, I, I think I was pretty jealous of you being completely off the grid for those three days because it was like you know down pretty <laughs> big on Wednesday, up huge on Thursday, and then down even more than it was up on Friday. And so. Just all uh, that, uh, all that crazy volatility. It's, it's good to step away from it for a little bit. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit jealous. Aside from the rattlesnake issue, I, didn't, I want nothing to do with that. Yeah, yeah, no, that that was uh, un, you know unsettling. And I was I was sleeping in a tent with, I mean, not in a tent. I was sleeping in a sleeping bag without a tent. So I was a little worried they'd come and get us at night or something. But everything is fine. Everything's fine. So. Um, so, so typically what we start out is talking about the macro for anyone new. We start about the macro market. We talk about for 15 minutes. We'll try to keep that shorter this time and talk more Tesla and Elon and, and Twitter and stuff and going to Q and a at the last portion of this uh, hour. And we're streaming live on YouTube. It's recorded on our good soil investment YouTube channel. And we're also on Twitter spaces and as a recorded space for anyone who wants to go back to it. So let's kick it off, Matt. I mean, macro market, um, just feels kind of uncertain, kind of a waiting game to me for later this week. There's a CPI print on Friday morning and then the Fed meeting next week. Um, you know, Kathy Wood had an interesting uh, take. Uh, she had her latest in the know. Um, did you get a chance to listen to that? I did. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a reiteration of what she had uh, previously been saying about kind of inventory buildups being a, a source of deflationary pressure. But uh, what was what was kind of your thought as you were listening to that? Yeah, no, I I agree. You know, she's kind of reiterating her take that you know uh, there's like crosswinds with inflation and deflation, perhaps you know oversupplies and things like Target or Walmart, and sure, sort of like speculating that the Fed's going to reverse course soon um, or going to have to. And uh, you know, you and I touched base a little bit yesterday, and you made a good point that like she sort of has to say that stuff in her position. Like she can't afford not to say that. Um, you know, given her fund, that her fund I don't think is allowed to like short the market, or uh, maybe it is, but it you know I, I'm not sure. It seems like their fund's purpose is mandate is to really just kind of be long only for the most part of growth and tech stocks. So um, I, I thought you know that was an interesting point you said yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you and I, we're always trying to find the truth. So if we become convinced that the market is going to, you know, significantly correct, we can go entirely short. Um, you know, there's mm -hmm. nothing kind of preventing us from from doing that with our flexibility. But I think with, um, you know, Kathy's prospectus and, and you know, the the mandate essentially of, of her various different funds, she's basically going long only. So, so her only tool is really to kind of, adjust the weights with, with within the portfolio companies. So, you know, as I'm, I'm listening to her, you know, logic, I, I, I tend to want to discount it a little bit, although, you know, I, I think a lot of what she says does make sense. Um, but at the same time, like she, she does, I think have to kind of have some sort of narrative that things are going to turn around and, and relatively quickly. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering, you know, to what extent does she actually believe that versus, you know, does she just kind of need to, you know, say that to say that. soothe shareholders that are down, whatever that is like 70% from a high or something like that. So, yeah, um, yeah she I, didn't I say know. that if she did say like, you know, and she probably really believes that, but probably out of bias of running her fund. But if she really did believe and say that, you know, we think the next six months, the market's going to kind of trade sideways or down, and it's going to be a rough, you know, six to 12 months or something, then imagine the outflows from her ETF, right? It would just like pile out pretty quickly. I bet there'd be a number of uh, skittish retail investors, especially that just kind of exit her ETF for now and say, I'll wait till things are going to get better and go somewhere else for now, you know, with my capital. So I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, at, at the same time, she does make, I think, some pretty compelling you know, comments. I mean, she was saying, uh, she mentioned Target specifically, I want to say it was like two weeks ago in, in one of her, um, 
videos. And then sure enough, this morning, there was this guidance from Target that, you know, Q2 margins were going to be weak because of this huge supply issue they've got. So essentially, just for, for those who maybe didn't hear it, um, you've got this dynamic where Target and a lot of other companies, you know, Walmart, um, there were a couple others, I kind of forget which, which they were, uh, but have reported like an uh, extreme kind of record buildup in inventory at the end of Q1. Um, and so you've got this dynamic where they they bought way too much during the COVID crash and supply chains were uneasy. So they, they frankly just, just purchased too much. And then they've got this huge amount of inventory heading into a recession. Um, so you've got high supply, way too high supply, frankly, coupled with falling demand. And so Kathy's point, which I think is legitimate, um, is that at least within some pockets of the, of the economy, um, you will have excess inventory coupled with uh, decreased demand leading to lower prices. And so if that happens, then that's a, that acts as a, a source of deflation. Um, so yeah. to me, that, that does seem reasonable. But, you know, there, there are definitely pockets of the economy, especially energy, uh, where there is yeah. <laughs> there's no sign of, of kind of letting up on the inflationary yeah. pressure. So, yeah, one, one interesting tidbit they on that is uh, she added a new thing called the Bitcoin monthly or something. It's sort of like they give kind of an update on where Bitcoin's at. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me, I mean, I, I own some Bitcoin. I'm, I, I still think it could be a real, you know, digital gold in the future, a store of value type of thing. We still could be an infancy. But one thing that stuck out to me in her analysis of that is there, she was talking about the 200 week moving average of Bitcoin, not the 200 day moving average, which by itself is sort of like a, a red flag for me or a pink flag. When people start talking about the 200 day moving average because, you know, we're not really chart technicians here. We don't really believe in that necessarily. We think it's sort of like astrology for finance. But if you have enough people believing in talking about the 200 day moving average, which you see everyone kind of all the chart people talk about that particular number, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. So maybe there is some support at that because a lot of people who believe in that are going to like think it's support and buy right in front of it or something. But she talked about the 200 week moving average for Bitcoin as being like the support. So to me, that was like a double whammy of sorts of like, uh, really, are you going to, you know, become a chart technician on Bitcoin? I mean, that just, you know, that, that was, uh, I felt like that was, you know, different from what ARC usually does when it approaches kind of investment theses is, you know, you know, that, that was a little disappointing to me, but, you know, I'm sure she has a lot of analysts that are like hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, maximalists feeding this to her. And uh, maybe she's just become a little entangled in that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember I, so I, I used to attend a lot of their uh, weekly kind of, uh, I don't know what they call them, brainstorming sessions, I guess it is. Um, and mm -hmm. back in January, they were kind of going over a lot of these, you know, key metrics. And they said, you know, every time Bitcoin's at whatever level it was, I, I, I forget the, de the details, you know, it's, it's had a sharp rebound since then. And so I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And I, you know, bought a little bit of Bitcoin. I just kind of like on the back of that analysis, you know, yeah. I, I really regret doing that because they were clearly wrong on whatever metrics they were looking at back in January. And I think like you're saying, I mean, a lot of this technical analysis stuff is is you know, voodoo. Now, some people love it, but um, I I will uh, go out there and stake my reputation that if it was actually, you know, a very legitimate source of, or, you know, way to predict moves, then there'd be a lot of people that would be very successful in making money and kind of people who look at fundamentals and value would be, you know, edged out of the of the stock market. But that hasn't really happened. So, so yeah. yeah, I just think it's, it's very sketchy that, that to, to make it any sort of claim that you can, you know, outperform the market on the back of technical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was interesting. So I guess we'll see. I, I went to one or two of their Friday brainstorming sessions and I thought it was good. Like, you know, there's a lot of good discussion there. We're not, you know, there's just, no one's perfect. Right. And, yeah. you know, I think her team overall is, is very bright. I really thought they were the all-star team when it was like, Brett Winton, Kathy Wood, Tasha Keeney, James Wang was part of it back then, and Sam Chorus. You know, when it was just like yeah. them, they were like the superstars. Like, you know, <laughs> it was like the dream team analysts almost in a way. Like, and then they kind of diluted themselves. And we talked about this. They have a whole new list of analysts. And most of the new analysts, I can't tell which ones are like, you know, better than an average Twitter analyst or not, you know, like it's, you know, some of them are, some of them are bright. They're all bright people, but there's a lot of bright people on Twitter that are, you know, acting as analysts too. Right. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, 
we'll just see how it shakes out for arc hopefully uh they recover you know um they've been beaten down a lot and it's going to take a market turnaround uh to make them recover so we'll see i mean and and for us and many of us out there same thing yeah we're all in the same kind of boat we're all kind of hoping for a market turnaround a macro market so that the stocks that we pick can perform because right now stock picking has been you know useless relative to what the macro market's doing um so we'll see and then uh yeah so the fed meeting next week um and there was a gdp print last week right matt what was that the gdp print last week it was yeah, so it was the uh, the the Q1 GDP print. I I wish I had brought the the numbers up ahead of me, but essentially it's kind of surprised to the upside. So you had like a little mini rally to to start the day uh, when 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 that came out. Um, and it's like it kind of gets to the irrationality of of the markets. You know, a lot of the commentary was like, oh, like you know, uh, GDP is you know better than than expected. So you know, mark the markets kind of rally, and then people are like, uh oh, well. If that's true, then the Fed's going to continue to raise rates. So we better sell. <laughs> like the, yeah. the market goes down. So like things are just so volatile right now. And, and kind of the 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 narrative chasing just doesn't make any sense. I mean, there was somebody posted like this hilarious um, meme. It wasn't even a meme, really, but a, just a picture on Twitter where somebody posted like, you know, oh, markets rally on the back of like strong GDP print. Um, <laughs> and and then by the time that like headline was out there on Yahoo Finance, like all the indices were like in the red on the same homepage. So it's just hilarious. He had this like headline that was completely disjointed from the actual uh, metric. So yeah, the, the level of volatility we're seeing right now is uh, something something to behold. Yeah, it just feels like the markets are in like no man's land at the moment. And it scares me because there could be another wave of selling that quickly drags the market down, you know, five or 10%. Yeah. Or it could be, a you know, some buying that there's no resistance and it just floats back up five or 10% real quick, you know? And yeah. so, and, and I have to correct myself. Scary. It, it wasn't GDP. It was, uh, it was employment figures. I think that, that were released. Oh. So yeah, no, I was like, I don't think the GDP actually came out. So I, yeah. I think when we were going over that yesterday, I, I misspoke. So apologies oh. for that. Yeah, it was, uh, unemployment and, um, figures that I think, and, and, uh, job ads, payroll additions, I think it was that came out. So okay. sorry for, for getting our, uh, our, our labels wrong there. Yeah, yeah. So the employment numbers—it's almost like we're in that in that oh, we're entering that realm where where we've been in it really. Where like bad news is good news. Like if unemployment <laughs> is higher, or if uh, the GDP forecast for the second quarter is going to be negative, that's like good news right now, and the markets rally because it means the Fed is less likely to tighten as much as they would otherwise, or something. You know, so it's it's kind of a, we're in this strange. I just don't like when we're in these kind of strange territory. I remember it's like a cyclical thing. Every few years, it seems like we enter this era where like bad news is actually good news. And we're sort of stuck in this weird time where it's like that with the macro market. Yeah. Well, and, and everybody is just kind of waiting for the Fed to change their tune. I mean, that's what Kathy Wood is, is talking about, like all these signals. Like if, if you listen to what Kathy's actually saying, it's um, I mean, I guess the, the inflation part of it's good, but she's also kind of. Um, giving a lot of undertones that like the economy is actually way worse than people are expecting. And, and so a lot of the, the argument is that the, the weakness of the economy, you know, so, so GDP and, and employment in particular, cause that's one of the feds mandates uh, will lead to uh, the fed, like essentially having their hand forced of, of needing to have a more accommodative uh, policy. So, so interest rates won't mm -hmm. rise as much essentially. And, and, and maybe there'll be some sort of reversal of this QT that's going on right now. Uh, which also yeah. started last week. So that's, I think, part of the, the sell that we saw was, was probably related to that. So, but yeah, it, it does get to this weird point where it's like, oh, hopefully things are so terrible in the economy that like, <laughs> that bails us out again and we get back to yeah. the old days of 2020. And that's that's not, I, I think, the way uh, long-term investors should really be, be thinking about things. Um, yeah. But there's, there's definitely elements of, of truth to that line of thinking right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing to remember with the macro market and, and the stock picking within, you know, where it feels almost meaningless for the last several months, picking good stocks or good businesses because the st all stocks have gone down in valuations and PE multiples and such because of uh, the market, the whole macro market kind of re revaluing everything because of interest rates. Right. So um, and cash availability and such. Um, but the important thing I think to remember is as a, if you're a long-term investor in something like Tesla, for example, like Matt and I both personally are, and many people watch us is the, you know, the theoretical value of any stock 
um, is going should be um, the future value of all its dividends. It pays back. It, it pays in present day, you know, and discounted back to present day value. So, you know, we believe Tesla, you know, several years from now, five or 10 years from now, we'll start paying dividends that could become very massive, you know, similar to what Apple's doing now. Think of it like, you know, five or 10 years ago, 10 years ago, people didn't think Apple could, you couldn't imagine Apple paying a dividend maybe, but now look at it paying an, you know, a massive dividend compared to what the Apple stock price was 15 years ago. So just kind of, that's how I frame it in my mind. Like, yeah, in the midst of all this noise of the macro market, really the value of Tesla will ultimately become that with the dividends in the future that it pays back discounted present day value. So, you know, for that reason, I'm still happy to hold Tesla as long as it takes, whether it's 10 or 15 years, you know, worst case in my mind to get to kind of a, a really incredible, meaningful value. But we think it'll be much, much sooner <laughs> that, you know, that Tesla will uh, grow, grow to be a much bigger valuation, but you never know. Macro markets could just put multiples at, you know, you just don't know. There's, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's historic precedent at times where PE multiples get drilled down, you know, very significantly for long periods of time. So, you know, just have to keep your eye on the prize with Tesla at least. And so moving on to Tesla, um, Troy Tesla, who we reference here often, uh, you know, he talks about, you know, his order tracker is, is pretty well known. He's like the most vigorous you know, detail-oriented order tracking process and methodology. He's been working on it since I remember Tesla Motor Club's forums back in, I started following that in 2010, 2011, and he might've been on there back then even. He was certainly on there like in 2013, 2014 or 2012, but yeah, he's been doing this for a long time and he's been very detail-oriented with his tracker and such. And, you know, he, he uh, has mentioned, you know, that orders, you know, I don't know if um, anyone's seen that. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the tweet, but the, the orders backlog or the, or the number, the rate of orders coming in for, for Tesla right now are very slow compared to a year ago. Um, but you had some thoughts on that, Matt, and why you think that might be right. Yeah. Well, so I have, I have a lot of mixed thoughts about this. I mean, one, and I, I want to just um, put out there and say that I, I think the the work that Troy does in this the survey in particular uh, is, is really valuable. It's a it's a really great data point. Um, but that said, it's a it's a survey, and any survey is you know subject to um, either inconsistencies or or it's, it has the potential to be unrepresentative of the broader population of of data that is outside the survey. Um, so you know Troy's um, um, indication that this was i think it was the the quarter to date orders were, were at by far the lowest rate in the last i think it was uh 18 months or so um so that's potentially a, a pretty concerning data point uh if you're looking at um you know just um the sustainability of tesla's demand um you know if if they can't uh, maintain order rate at what levels they were even 12 months ago then as soon as they work through this thick backlog that they've got, uh, there's potential that Tesla would have to either lower prices or you know, pull some other demand levers or potentially just not sell as many cars as they have the capacity to produce. Um, so that's a that's a very important data point, I think, to consider uh, as one of the things we talked about with Drew Dixon, actually, in kind of the bull bear debate is, you know, what's the kind of long term sustainable level of demand? We think it's a lot higher from here. All indications are it's a, it's a lot higher than the current level of production. Um, but if it's not, I mean, if, if demand actually dries up right at the moment when, you know, Berlin and Austin are like fully ramped, that'd be a very big, big problem. So it's a really important question, I think, for that reason. Um, yeah. But uh, I do think there's there's reasons maybe not to take it too seriously. W one reason Troy even mentioned, and he said this was kind of the answer, which which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but he, he posted that um, the, just the fact that lead times are now over six months is causing people not to order. And I think that's absolutely one variable that's impacting it. But I think it would be um, maybe kind of uber bullish or, or uh, irresponsible to think that the slowdown in the economy is not, in, you know, to some degree um, weighing on on this. If it is even true, Tesla's uh, you know, decreased order rate. Um, but, you know, th that said, I think there's there's also some issues with the survey like we were touching on. Um, you know, for example, um, one of the things that Tesla highlighted in their uh, Q1 deck was the huge surge in orders that they had immediately, like the day after the uh, Super Bowl. 
Uh, but when you go back through Troy's data on that chart that he posted, there's actually no spike at all on like the week or um, any time near uh, the Super Bowl. So yeah. that that potentially is one kind of um, mm. data point that that cuts against the the credibility of that at that data point or that survey as being truly representative of Tesla's kind of global uh, order book. Yeah, um, so that is interesting. Lot, lot you don't see that spike. There. You don't see that spike you would have expected at the Super Bowl in orders because Tesla even said that was their largest, right? But it, there was no spike in Tesla and in they, Troy's uh, showing there, right? Yeah, and they charted. I mean, they Tesla gave um, a, a view of their order chart. I think it was like a daily order chart. It was you know kind of bouncing up and down, and then the Super Bowl happened, and it was like a huge. It was like a, a very clear shift change in in order rate. Um, and, and Troy's data does not have that similar sort of spike um, coinciding with the same time uh, of that February month. So, mm. um, you know, it's not to say it's not a valuable data point or anything like that. I think I think like we were saying before, it, it truly is. But I think we need to take that with a big grain of salt. And, and my one kind of pushback to some of the stuff that Troy says is he says things definitively a lot of times that I think are not so clearly definitive. Yeah. Um, I just tweeted to Troy and I know he follows me. I said, why not showing any spike during Super Bowl as Tesla shows showed displayed? Yeah. yeah. So and, we'll and see what he comes to back. Be clear, like that. there was, um, in Troy's data, there was like about a month after the Super Bowl, there was a bit of a, you know, pronounced upward slope in, in the order rate. So there could mm -hmm. be some sort of time lag going on there or something. But the point is that data is inconsistent with Tesla's actual data. So that's yeah. um you know no, that's a good point we should find out to get to the bottom of that i mean yeah it seems odd um so we'll find out what troy if he answers that uh in the next 24 hours yeah so that that that's interesting troy's data how 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 much can you trust it i guess you know there's certain kinks in the armor uh that uh, of his data that appear like the, you know, it's, it's, um, the veracity might not be as strong as we assume. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, also mentioned, uh, he mentioned the weight for model three short is shortening, but the model Y is lengthening that, that to me is obvious that the model Y is sort of like eating the world in terms of like demand <laughs> It's just like off the hook. Like everyone wants a model, like you should see, you know, at the, my kid's school, like, you know, model Ys everywhere. Like model, I just see so many model Ys. It's just, I think the demand is just, the value for the model Y is by far the best of the, all the Tesla cars, in my opinion, the value you get for the price you pay. And uh, I think we'll continue to see the model Y demand. Just, you know, SUVs are extremely popular and um, we'll just see that continue to grow. I mean, lots of people who are getting their first Tesla are getting model, are choosing to get model Ys and they would never have chosen it to get a model three, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've always had like a, either a subcompact or like a small car. Um, and yeah. the first time I didn't was when I bought the model Y and I just, I love that car so much. <laughs> I was, I was, I had like to do a huge Costco trip with my two daughters the other day. And I had, I ended up doing like two cartfuls of groceries because my family's so big. We <laughs> just go through so much stuff. I was a little yeah. bit worried, like, oh, if there's like, I might actually run out of room because I had like, you know, the giant paper towel and toilet paper and all of that stuff. And it's like, oh, there's actually no problem at all, like fitting this between the trunk and like the under the floor space and the in the back. I, uh, it's just, it's such a great car. I absolutely love it. I've never loved a car anything close to how much I, I love this car. So it's, yeah, it's, I think Model Y eating the world is, is definitely going to continue. And the, the good thing about that, too, is, um, you know, the, those are obviously higher ASPs, but they're also higher margin, um, yeah. which is something like we were talking about a year ago. But I think people forget just how much higher margin Model Y is than, than Model 3. Um, mm -hmm. and, and especially with the, the kind of the gigapress, too. With the gigapress, which is kind of coming online right now. Um, but right now, with the order backlog the way that it is, they're uh really prioritizing higher trim models um so mm -hmm. that's i i think that's has the potential to be a a, a pretty big uh tailwind this this quarter uh yeah. which is a quarter that we actually need it so yeah yeah like i don't i don't think they use the gigapress for model three i could be wrong but i don't, I don't, I don't think, think they do they, no yeah i think it's a model y feature and then cyber truck you know feature too 
in terms of manufacturing efficiencies. And so I, I you know, there's a lot of advantages to the gross margins with the Model Y, as you mentioned. Um, and then uh, the next thing is the latest full self-driving version. Matt, you you have the latest first full self-driving version. You've been driving around. Uh, what's your thoughts on it? Uh, version 10.13 is coming out soon with no need for maps, apparently. But this newest 10.12 version, what do you think? Um, it's been, a, I would say, um, a modest step back for me in most regards. Mm. So and He, he um, prefaced that. He kind of warned us, like, mm -hmm. it's one step. This might be one of those one step back. Yeah. Kinda. I mean, I kind of... The, the way that I've been thinking about development of FSD in general is like single stack to me is really like the sooner we get on single stack, the better. And and we're still yeah. a little ways away from there, apparently. Um, so I'm kind of judging how quickly I expect FSD to really make progress by the point at which we get to FSD or FSD uh, single stack and then what the iteration looks like until then. Um, so, you know, just with this latest version, I've had like the, the most common issue is, you know, this like system failure where it, it just you know, freaks out and says like, you need to take over immediately. There's been a FSD failure that happens mm -hmm. to me, like at this one particular point on, on a neighbor, a street in my neighborhood, like every single drive, sometimes like three times on this one road. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit rough with that. It's a lot of the lane selection stuff still is not great, which was an issue on the last one. Uh, but at, at the same time, uh, it's definitely more assertive and and uh, my modestly better, I'd say, at, at kind of left turns on protected lefts. Um, so a little, some steps forward, uh, but the overall experience is, I would say, a, a step back. But I've, I've heard other people that have the opposite experience. So okay. I got to yeah. take my own experiences with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. Lots of people putting up YouTube videos. I've watched a few and, you know, some are disappointing, some are pleased. And yeah, I think it's a, a mixed uh, bag. Um, and the beta group is expanding to 100,000 users, he said, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, it so. was a little unclear, uh, you know, because on the Q1 call, we were talking about this yesterday. He mentioned there were 100,000 beta testers currently. But then his tweet uh, earlier this week was something to the effect of we're expanding 10. Uh, is it 12 or 13? I think 12 or something. Yeah. 10.12 10 to 100,000 users. So it was, yeah. is that 100,000 new users to make it 200,000 total or is it the same 100,000? But yeah. what we've, and the, the program's clearly expanding. I mean, we've heard from uh, some people on Twitter who got the beta for the first time this week. Um, even some people with a safety score as low as 91 uh, were reported to have gotten it. And, and Emmett, you've got to be on the list pretty soon, I think, here. You got your safety yeah. score up from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, my safety score is back up to 94. So I'm close. It was like in the low 90s for a while. I couldn't get it out. And I have my kids check it every day when I'm driving to school. I give them the phone, like, check the safety score. I have to like rotate to who checks which day or they fight about it. And they're all excited for me, waiting to get to 95. Because I said, when I get to 95, maybe I'll get the new software and they want to see it too. And these kids are, you know, six, seven, and nine. You know, they're young, but they're excited for it just as I am. And they see my excitement. And so last night I saw the news and I saw that I had a, uh, a new software version to download. I had to connect to Wi-Fi. I usually don't check it because I usually assume I have to get to 95 plus. So it said connect to Wi-Fi to get new software. So I had to connect, you know, my cars in my driveway and I had to move it around and get, you know, my wife. It wasn't connected to the Wi-Fi. I finally got it connected and it downloaded the software and it installed it. And then I went in late last night to check it. And it was the newer non-full self-driving uh, software, just where I get the customizable buttons at the bottom. I was like, oh, it was a big letdown. And then I checked the settings. And there's a setting in there for anyone who has the same thing as waiting. Make sure you go into the settings and go to like software. Somewhere in there, you have to set it from standard software to advanced software. I think because when you said to it, mine was set on standard. That's like the default. So you have to move it over to advanced software so that it says like you'll be getting the most latest versions of software that way or something. So I set it to advanced and hopefully, you know, when they do their next batch of uploads or whatever, I'll be in one of the next batches, you know, uh, prompted to download the, the full self-driving beta. So, yeah, I'm excited to get it hopefully soon and test it out and use it myself i've sat in a couple of people driving it and you know i've watched a number a ton of many hours of youtube videos <laughs> i'm finally ready to do it myself so i'll let you yeah. know it'll be news i'll talk about my experience I'm, uh, for sure. I'm definitely very curious to see what it's like for you because it, it sounds like it's so overfit for the bay area right now yeah. so i'm wondering if it's just like amazing when when you kind of 
finally roll it out. So yeah, I see half of yeah half of Omar's drives. I feel like uh, when he posts his YouTube videos, I'm like, oh, I know that area in Tiburon or wherever. Like I know some of the areas. He's <laughs> I know the roads, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to try it out in these roads. I would never expect it to work in those roads, but it, it, clearly it does work very well. So I'm yeah, like some of those. Yeah, those drives like that, especially the ones that Omar does, it's like that they're so much more complicated than my drives and it seems to handle them better. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know, something about the Bay Area just like, yeah. it's, it's like definitely overfit. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. And and another thing we thought about yesterday, um, we touched on yesterday with with uh, catching up on stuff is, um, you know, this whole Twitter deal, right? Um that, you know, people on one one hand, I was nervous when Elon made the offer back when before the markets capitulated this last time, right before the tech stocks went down this last like 10 or 15 percent back when he made the original bid at 5420, um, you know, th that night or the next day we were wondering, like, is there going to be a bid high? Is he going to have to get high? You know, for the next couple of days, a lot of people wondered if he's going to have to raise his bid. But he said, no, that's his highest offer. And then um, it, there was a lot of like you could see that like maybe this offer wasn't good enough for Twitter to accept, you know, like there was initial pushback and this is before the macro market tanked again. Right. And, yeah. and um, uh, you could imagine if the market never tanked, we'd be in a situation, even with this bot stuff that, you know, Twitter, that Twitter would be like still trying to play the card, like hey, we're worth more than 5420. We don't want Elon to buy us, you know, and that you'd have a lot of people, you know, that don't like Elon, particularly on the far left, for example, that are trying to push back against it. But now it's almost like the tables have flipped completely, you know, partly because the macro market went down, but also because Elon's made a big deal about the bot issue. And now all the people that in the past would have been like, we don't want Elon to take it. Now they're doing the opposite. They're like, no, Elon, you have to take it. You paid for it. You bet you get what you, you get your medicine. So it's almost like he played a mass psychology game on the, on the people that would have most liked him not to get Twitter initially. Um, yeah. But he had some help with the macro markets in some way. Yes. <laughs> he did. It's, it's, I don't know what to think about it, but it's almost like, like he stabbed Twitter and like now Twitter's <laughs> bleeding out. And he like made like this weakness super apparent. It's like, well, either they take his deal and somehow make it work, uh, or yeah. he walks away and like Twitter loses half its advertising revenue or something like that. It yeah. probably wouldn't be quite that severe, but like he's yeah. he's he's definitely inflicted a pretty significant wound on on Twitter. Should they you know not move forward? Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like he's got all the power in this situation. I'm having a hard time reading though. There's a lot of. Uh, media outlets kind of reporting that he's trying to walk away from the deal now. I'm not sure that that's true. Um, yeah, I'm not sure either. You know, it's speculation. I, in my mind. I think if he, if he could get it, you know, priced down to like, I don't know, $40 with some, you know, he, he clearly needs the, the, um, uh, the bot data. So, you know, if he can get it at like $40 and he gets access to the data that he needs and he says, okay, bots are more than 5%, but it's some level that he thinks, you know, he can kind of handle. Um, yeah. then I think the deal still gets done. Um, yeah, but yeah. if it I doesn't mean, he's buying Twitter, he, I mean, I gotta believe that he's buying Twitter for what he believes he can turn it into what he can unlock it to become. That's his primary purpose for buying Twitter. Not his primary purpose is not buying Twitter for what it is now, you know, and right, right now it's a bigger mess than he anticipated. Sure. But his primary goal was to turn it into something really special. And I think that's still, I think, I think he still wants it to happen He's just kind of negotiating to try to get the lower price. And uh, we'll see if he, if he does happen to walk away, then we'd also talked about yesterday, like what he sold 8.5 billion of Tesla stock, right? At, at a high cost basis, we assume because it's of his options that, you know, exercise were exercised. So most of that 8.5 billion or all of it is just sitting in his bank account, maybe waiting to buy Twitter. Right. And if he walks away from Twitter, I think a very likely outcome is he buys 8.5 billion of Tesla stock back at a lower price than what he sold it for. Right. And I mean, mm -hmm. what do you think the odds are of that? If, if he walks away from Tesla Twitter, what do you think the odds are that that 8.5 billion, perhaps more, because it seems like he might have more from his sales back in November for taxes anyway, but uh, maybe not. But let, what do you think he does with that 8.5 billion of cash just sitting there? What do you think, Matt? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point of it that I hadn't thought of. Thought of so it was, it was an interesting thought exercise when, when you brought that up yesterday. 
But yeah, I mean, remember when when he sold that? I forget when that was. Was it like April? Or it was something? like right after the Twitter. Yeah, it was right after the Twitter deal announcement, or right after he made. Yeah. Yeah, but the the stock tanked like around a hundred dollars, maybe even more than that, uh, just yeah. like as a result of of his selling, essentially. Um, yeah. So you could imagine if if he you know turned that into buying power, you know, at these lower levels now that we're at you know around seven hundred dollars a share. Um, you know, that could be a, a, a very meaningful catalyst for the stock, you know, especially at a time when like people still forget there's a split coming here pretty soon, which, you know, has yeah. to be a catalyst. We saw that with Amazon this past week. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't in terms of pegging the odds. I mean, you know, in the scenario where he does walk away, I wouldn't expect him yeah. to, to deploy maybe the entire eight and a half billion back. And, and I think there's a very real question of would he try to build a competitor to Twitter? Mm. And I think if he did do that, he wouldn't like there's no way he'd spend eight and a half billion dollars no, maybe like one billion or two billion right. at the most. right yeah. so maybe he spends like a billion towards that effort and keeps like a billion just to have some like cash cushion for his personal yeah. life or whatever but then i don't know he could build it maybe he could, might even be able to build it with a hundred million dollars or something i don't even know yeah. like it might be <laughs> like it's just software you need a bunch yeah. of you know could, you know he, yeah. he's like like look at what he did with boring company he's got like a skeleton crew and they sold yeah. merchandise like hats and flamethrowers to fund the business like that was actually what he did so he's yeah. he's so like ridiculously um capital efficient uh when it comes to anything that that he's building um so i think uh he may maybe he keeps like a billion in reserve to kind of fund it or something like that but there's no way yeah. he like put that in at the outset, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Tesla but, stock could start taking off quick if he's buying it in the same manner that he sold it. You know, he sold it over three days or something. If he was buying it over three days, in a sort of a, you know the the manner he was selling it, then uh, yeah, yeah, the stock could certainly rip you know up a hundred dollars pretty quickly. And yeah, we'll we'll see if that that happens. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great thought, though. I was glad you brought that up. We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens if he walks away from the Twitter deal. There's potential good news for Tesla and that Tesla stock price, at least. Um, or he might just keep it off, keep it, you know, keep it handy and re redeploy it in SpaceX and a combination of SpaceX, Neuralink and Boring Company. And, you know, who knows? You know, that's another side of the, the coin that could happen. Um so yeah, let's go on to Q and A. I think we covered most of the stuff. Anything else you wanted to cover? Or should we look at the, just go on to Q and A for the last twenty minutes here? Yeah, no. Let, let's uh, let's jump into Q and A. Okay, a lot of great comments in the YouTube thing, by the way. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to play them out loud here. All right. So first, from Tesla Ten Trillion on Twitter, why do you think Tesla has been slow to ramp energy and solar if they're not constrained by batteries? What do you think, Matt? Yeah. Um, so if anyone hasn't seen Drew Baglino had a, a really great uh, interview at Stanford, I forget exactly what the, the summit was, but it was posted last week, I think. Uh, and oh, one I of the questions that. toward the end uh, was around solar roof and why isn't solar roof really, really ramping? Um, and, and Drew gave some great insight, which I hadn't really heard before, but um, does kind of make sense. He said, you know, they spent so much time kind of perfecting the tile and making the tile as like cost efficient as possible and as like productive from a like photovoltaic energy perspective as possible. But they didn't spend nearly the amount of time looking at the installation process or looking at the amount of flashing that would that would be needed. So yeah. um, his point was uh, yeah. like now they are trying to focus on like getting the extreme efficiencies out of that side of the business or of the installation process you know, as they w were kind of developing this really phenomenal solar tile. Um, mm -hmm. So for, I, I thought that was a really great answer. And to me, it does um, kind of make sense. I think the old like rooftop PV is not the way to go. It's been pretty clear to me for a long time that like the old, what Solar City used to do, like going door to door and selling, like that's just, that's such a low margin business. And there's, all, it's a commodity business. You don't want to be in that business. Um, mm -hmm. But having a differentiated product that you can install efficiently and, and you know give a lot of value that's the way to go so i think they're still trying to figure out that process um and on the um energy side like they they are still constrained by um um cells right now to to deploy on on stationary storage so they're they're certainly ramping it up and i think we'll see an acceleration of that but um that they're they've not had kind of dedicated capacity um for the stationary storage side and they're starting to get that now with this this new facility that they're they're ramping up yeah uh, do you yeah. have any thoughts on it 
Yeah, I think I agree with you. And on the batteries, I agree. I think uh, Dave Lee and I had an interview with Brett Winton uh, maybe a year ago now. Um, and uh, he mentioned, um, you know, he, he really, you know, had a lot of good insight on on stuff. And, and one thing he mentioned that I remember that was seems obviously true in retrospect as well is that um, all the batteries Tesla can produce go to cars. That's their highest margin business right now. Any excess batteries that aren't sold from cars, they will kind of reroute to be used for energy storage more likely. So, you know, they, they have enough batteries going to energy storage now to kind of keep that business line running, going and growing, but it's not going to grow exponentially until they've sort of exhausted as many batteries as they can for the car demand. That's just, you know, overwhelming at the moment. That's my, that's what he kind of seemed to, that's what I got out of what he said. It seems to yeah. be true. All right, next question from Tesla Doodle on Twitter. Peru Saxena believed a Fed pivot will happen in the second half of this year, as does Gary Black. What are your thoughts on this? I've been following Peru more recently, actually. I, you know, it's funny. Peru, I think, has a really interesting angle or take on the macro market. That's why I've been following him more closely. You know, he's not always right. Not all of it. A lot of people aren't always right, right? But he he definitely looks at it from a perspective that I think is valuable to see. Um but, you know, his actual picks on individual stocks, I'm not, a, I don't think he's very necessarily great at, but he, overall he does big baskets of stocks for a stock picking. So he's not going to go too wrong there, but uh, his, his take on the macro market movements, t the tides of the macro market, you know, he's been pretty, uh, you know, he's been good enough to be, you know, not get hit as hard as many of us have been hit. So even though he hasn't had a great performance year to date, I think, it's still not as bad as as many of us others who are investing in growth and tech stocks. So I've been following him, and you know, second half of this year that seems the most likely outcome. It doesn't mean they won't pivot the next month or two, but you know, well, second half of this year is actually in a month or two. <laughs> so so we're already in the we're the first half of the year. I can't believe we're past it. So yeah, it seems like second half of this year. It's it's likely to happen. Whether it's the beginning, the third quarter, or the fourth quarter, I don't know. Um, any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I mean, we, we touched on this a little bit in the first part with uh, Kathy Wood, because Kathy Wood's also in this camp that, you know, the Fed's going to have to change course. Um, and, and and I as I've been kind of digging into all these arguments, and, and they're not all the same, but, you know, I think there's um, different points where each one of these individuals is, is right and maybe a little bit off. Um, but but I, I think in kind of aggregating all these different data points and perspectives together, um, I do think it's 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 seeming in my mind increasingly likely that the Fed is going to have to back off of, of some of these interest rates. Um, just, you know, they, they, I think they're, they're very clearly trying to kind of, you know, cool the, the economy um, and combat inflation. But if inflation starts showing signs of coming down, uh, which I, I'm increasingly believing will be the case, you know, in the economy, instead of like cooling a little bit, goes into a deep freeze, which it also seems uh, on the uh, a cusp of, of doing, then I think that might uh, force the Fed's hand a little bit. And we, we spoke a little bit last week, too, on impact of midterms. And uh, while that shouldn't impact things, it, it very well could. Um, so I, I think it's more likely than not that the Fed will pivot and, um, you know, maybe start to back off of, of some of these, you know, kind of worst case scenario, like 5% Fed funds rates. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there was the, there was the meeting with Biden last Tuesday, I think it was. And uh, I'm still convinced that Biden told him, you know, he was given some talking points to tell him that like, you know, don't crash the account, the stock market in the summer, you know, right. We have midterm elections coming up, do what you can to stabilize things or something like to that effect. And so whether or not Powell heeds to that kind of uh, discussion, you, you have, when the president of the United States, regardless of who, who the person is, whether it's you, you hate Trump or you hate Biden, or you think Biden is half there. If it's the president of the United States states ask making a request, you have to take it seriously, you know? So yeah. We'll see what Powell, um, if he if he changes, you know, if it, if it does anything to this Fed meeting language, for example, and becomes more dovish suddenly, let's say. So we'll see. Um, let's go to the next question. From Data FEMA on Twitter, why shouldn't Tesla be busy aggressively investing billions of dollars into every viable lithium project? Hmm. You know, I'm not a mining expert, you know, I would love to, I know there's, uh, you know, there's people who are sort of experts on the, the lithium um, supply chain and 
we should interview someone on this maybe uh, and find someone. Unless Matt, you have any thoughts on this? Maybe you, yeah, you know, no, in your past. I agree. I mean, well, my my uh, my past was more kind of like the electricity market side, less on the um, mining side. So yeah, I, I agree with you. You like um, maybe it'd be good to get um, Jordan from um, Limiting, Limiting Factor, Factor. here. Yeah, he's yeah. he's such a great resource and and definitely understands this stuff in a lot more detail than than you or I do. So. Yeah, we get a little roundtable. Get him and someone else, like a little roundtable. We're doing a roundtable later this week or next week on uh, full self-driving stuff, uh, technology. So with some potential skeptics. So we'll uh, we'll 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 have that out soon. But we should we should try to get one on the books for for the lithium mining and raw material mining stuff, maybe. Yeah, somebody mentioned in the comments, Joe Lowry, Global Lithium Podcast. I'm not aware of that, but yeah, maybe that's one to dig into. Yeah, Alec, would you take note of that? Thanks. All right, next question is from Rudy Romo on YouTube comments. Your thoughts on the Indonesia-Tesla connection? Hmm, I do think there's a connection there. I think Elon, you know, it's funny, you know, you know, when, when the U.S., the, you know, when half of the U.S. Uh, political system is kind of revolting against Elon and he feels kind of dejected to some, you know, you see him going to Brazil or forming relationships with Indonesia, you know, he's... He stays strong with China, you know, and, you know, he's a global person at this point. He doesn't have to depend just on the U.S. or, or even just on China. And it's good for him to diversify in other regions, other countries, I think, his businesses. So I think there's some serious connection there with Indonesia and Tesla. Indonesia is a much bigger country than many people realize. And uh, I think there could be a lot of, you know, especially with India, it seems seem to be falling apart with the India-Tesla negotiation Um so I think in Indonesia might there might be something there. Any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I I, I don't have too like, overly developed thoughts on this, but I, it does seem like that there's actually something brewing there. I mean, it seems like it's been the the same thing with UK for a while. You know, there were talks about a, a gigafactory there. It wouldn't surprise me if there's some kind of announcement at some point down the road. But to me, like you probably want to have an Asian uh, hub somewhere that isn't in China. Um, I don't think you want to put all your eggs in the Chinese basket necessarily, even though it's obviously been incredibly successful so far. So I, I think yeah. Indonesia is, is a great place. It's got a huge population, good workforce. Um, so yeah, I, I, to me, it seems legitimate, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's, you know, two years of silence before we hear something out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Next question from... Evan Glansman, question. Did you see Nancy Pelosi's husband loaded up on in-the-money calls for Apple and Microsoft expiring expiring in early 2023, just the other week? Do you think she obtained some information? Hmm. <laughs> She's been known. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and her husband or their advisor has been known to bet big on uh, stocks uh, with long-term options and... Um, I'm not sure she knows something about like the macro economy. Like, I don't think so. I don't think she knows something about the macro. Like, I don't think she knows Powell is going to, well, maybe she does. Maybe she's in cahoots with Biden enough to know that Biden talked to Powell and said, and maybe this is like a, you know, even though it's long-term leaps, maybe it's more to get exposure on the next short-term up, up move of the market. I don't know. I think Microsoft and Apple are just kind of like, tech stocks that are becoming value stocks. And yeah, I mean, I don't think she has inside information on those companies specifically. <laughs> and I'm, I've it hard to find, I've, I have a hard time believing she has, you know, inside information on, on where the macro market will be come in 2023. Um, but she might have some information on where the, where the macro market's going in the next three months. That's what I'm saying. Just based on, on, you know, if, if she thinks, you know, Biden had a, a indiscreet discussion with Powell to make sure he doesn't, you know, capitulate the market any further and reverse his course a little bit. That, that's a conspiracy part of me thinking that, I, you know, the odds of that might be like 25 to 40 percent in my mind, which is significant to think about, but not probable. Any anything. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tend not to put too much stock on, on on it, but at the same time, like her timing historically has been uncanny. And I think somebody tweeted, I didn't verify this or anything but somebody tweeted um that these were bought on like the exact low of each one of these stocks <laughs> like they've only rebounded <laughs> from here um so it's certainly 
possible that she's got a better feel for things. Like so somebody tweeted, it was like her performance is better than like the best hedge fund or like the best like quant from Citadel or anything like that. It's better than Warren Buffett since she started probably. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's, there's certainly some value for uh, inside information. And I think, you know, with especially like how, how she, she, or her husband played it around, around COVID. I mean, there were some really phenomenal calls there. So, which, I mean, frankly, you had two Emmett, so it's, it's not Mm -hmm. to say there's anything nefarious going on, but uh, she does have a, a pretty phenomenal track record and, uh, I think maybe just trading She's on the, the wrong business. Her. Yeah, maybe <laughs> she shouldn't be a congressman. Maybe she'd be a hedge fund manager. <laughs> I don't understand how Congress lawmakers, you know, are able to bet on the market at all. It seems so such a conflict yeah. of interest. One of those things that in term limits, I don't know if the, they, they they clearly should not uh, be allowed. And it's just. Um, it's it's crazy it's just even if she's not like even if she's being purely like innocent in this it just opens the door to lots of speculation on you know and there are going to be some bad apple congress folks even if it's not her that will use information for their own benefit and they'll tell you know you'll you'll see them using it for friends and family maybe that they have friends and family that's not like reported you know because it's not their family but it's like a distant friend that you know there's lots of weird stuff that can go on, but limiting it is better than condoning it when right now it's sort of condoned by allowing them to do this. So, all right, let's go to the the next question from Jeffrey Hoffman on YouTube comments. Why does shorting hurt Tesla stock? Is it because they borrow shares and margin and then sell them? Is it the initial selling pressure that hurts the stock? Um, That's a great question, Jeffrey. Uh, And, Shorting hurts Tesla's stock because it creates extra pressure for the stock to go down. So it creates, um, uh, you know, I think it creates like almost the effect of having uh, more shares on the market in a way that that are than some of those being sold. But it has the reverse effect when those shorts have to be closed. So it's so in all things, you know, being equal, it's it's not really hurting a stock long term unless that stock has to raise capital soon to survive. And for the case of Tesla for a long time, that was, that was needed, you know, but from this point forward, I don't think shorting Tesla, you know, hurts Tesla stock for the long term in any way, you know, it might hurt me and you or people who own stock now who are kind of watching their, their investment accounts go down temporarily. And if you're not a long-term investor, it could hurt you. But if you're a long-term investor now, I don't think it hurts. Um, but for a long time, it certainly would, you know, artificial. You know, in a way, it's artificially lowering the stock price because you're selling more stock than, you know, otherwise would be sold if shorting was not allowed, and that creates the stock price to be low. That makes the stock price be lower, and then the Tesla has to dilute the shares even more to raise the same amount of capital to fund their business to grow at the way they want to grow it. Um, so, Matt, any thoughts you want to throw in there? No, I, I think you covered it well. So, yeah, we you can probably just go on to the next question. Okay. From Mr. S13652 on YouTube, why didn't Tesla set up two separate Model 3 and Y lines in Berlin and Texas? Isn't it risky to just have one line if there are no line if there are line breakdowns? Wouldn't there be downtime if the lines are switched from three to Y? I mean, I I have faith in Tesla's ability to manufacture. You know, they clearly seem to be the leader in the world in manufacturing. Elon recently on an interview. Said, and he's a humble guy, I think. And he said he's he knows more about manufacturing than anyone else in the world right now alive. <laughs> so I have I have faith in his decision making on this stuff. Um, I don't know the specifics enough. You know, when you say a line, you know, it sounds to me like it should be just like a line, like okay. And if that line breaks, it's also. But we don't know. The line could just be a term for like the process of moving things forward. And maybe there's lots of paths along that process that can be flexible. If something breaks down, I, I don't know enough about it to, to make that determination on this question. Any thoughts, Matt? Um, yeah. So I hadn't actually heard um, that they would only have one line to me. That doesn't sound right. So I could, I could be wrong and maybe they do just have one kind of massive line, but that doesn't sound right to me. Um, but like I said, I could be wrong. Uh, but one, one thought though um, is just, with any line that you're setting up, it's really capital intensive and it frankly takes a long time to set up that line. So you don't want to be in a situation where you, you're setting up something to only improve it like you know two years down the road. So 
you know, the one good example of this is um, like like Tesla is still using that that tent line in their Fremont factory uh, that they set up. What was it five years ago or four years ago in the in the middle of the uh, Model Three ramp? Uh, where they were like facing bankruptcy and they really needed to get the production rate up immediately. And they just came up with this like short-term measure to get the line up and running. Um, so they, they built that tent line and they still have this tent <laughs> in what used to be their parking lot in Fremont. Um, and that's, you know, that was a good thing, but I'm, I'm sure if you kind of run the economics of that one particular line, it's, it's not the most efficient uh, or like cost-effective line that they've got. So um I, I like Emmett said. I I do trust their judgment to maybe take their time and, and um, you know set it up in the way that it's going to be the most kind of long term profitable. Um, and I, I wouldn't worry if they're maybe a little bit slower to to ramp up as they're you know trying to work out issues with casting and getting forty six eighty ramped up and that sort of thing. Yeah. Another question from Enrique Moctezuma on YouTube. What are your thoughts on Apple CarPlay? Is this the Apple quote unquote car? I <laughs> I do think this is as far as Apple. I personally think this is as far as Apple actually gets with getting into the car business. You know, they may actually unveil some Apple car someday, but I don't think it'll ever get to mass production in any way, shape or form. It's such a huge thing i don't think apple's up to that type of task at this point in its maturity um to, to, if steve jobs was still there certainly they would have done it a while ago um but uh apple carplay to me the, the demonstration and what i saw about it yesterday you know i'm not a software expert in any way shape or form but i know i know integrating things can be difficult and you have you know legacy oems you know that have their own you know archaic software infrastructure that is a nightmare to develop uh from what what i've heard and what matt i think you you know about from friends and family and such that work there and just somehow integrating an apple gui or an apple operating system into their cars i think will be will require a herculean task of integration between engineering teams of both like ford and gm and Apple, like they're going to have to really work together to develop it, like together to make it work, like to efficiently. Like, I just don't see the Apple CarPlay working seamlessly or very well with Ford or GM cars, for example, until that happens. And that may never happen where they're, the teams are working together synergistically you like that. You know, I don't, what do you think, Matt? Did, did you listen to the uh, developers conference yesterday? I watched... Uh, parts of it, the highlights of it. So I saw the highlight of the Apple CarPlay where they showed, demoed it and stuff. Yeah, and talked about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. I did not. So I, I don't necessarily have the most um, informed opinion on this. But yeah, to me, this is like something that's been in their skunk works forever. And that doesn't mean that it's ever going to leave the skunk works. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. Apple CarPlay is a real product. It's in use now. Some people really love it. And to me, if that would be the smarter thing to do is to just you know, let that be the extent of it. I mean, yeah, like, it's like you don't want to go down and, and like spend a bunch of money. Like I, I think of what Dyson did, like a vacuum company decided they need to get in the car <laughs> business. And it was like, no, it's like stick to no, what you're good yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, what a lot of people compare it to is basically Apple's going to become the Google Android for the other cars that are not, uh, the Tesla cars. So it's sort of ironic. Like you have Apple building the <laughs> Apple iPhone in the phone industry. And now Apple's, you know, resorted to becoming the Google Android in the car business, you know? And yeah. uh, I think that's a good analogy and ironic in a lot of ways, but I think building a Google Android for different types of cell phones in my mind has got to be a lot easier than building a Google Android for so many different types of cars. You know, a car is a much bigger mechanical object with many more moving parts and things, you know, especially inter especially internal combustion engine cars, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's going to be a very difficult task for Apple to have a, a good car play built into, like, the dashboard of the, the cars, like they demoed, you know, like they're like, oh, the dashboard's going to be built into the dashboard to look like this and this, and everything will be touchscreen for, you know, I just don't see it. I, I I am a bear on that. If I could short that idea specifically, <laughs> I would. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Next question from Investing Errors: Tesla will move on Berlin and Texas, stamping out cars. 
when are they going to come online in volume? Hmm. I, you know, that's a great question. I'm sure we'll find out in the next earnings report. It's going to be the topic of the uh, of each earnings report for the next few earnings reports. How's the ramp going? Um, and so, yeah, we'll find out. It seems like the ramp is a little faster, going a little a little further ahead in Berlin than Austin right now, from what I've seen. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, there, there was some news this morning about um, a, a, not a huge number, but a, a pretty decent amount of uh, Model Ys that I think were being delivered in Norway this morning so out of, out of Germany. So that was good to see. And then there were some pictures I saw yesterday of um, the Model Ys starting to pile up in, in the Berlin parking lot. Um, so it seems from from those two reports uh, that there was e each site had a, a pretty meaningful uptick in, in production volume in the last week or so. Uh, but still, it's, you know, not to the level, you know, anything close to, to like what Shanghai or, or Fremont is, is putting out yet. So, you know, you just at this early stage of the S curve and it, it absolutely will ramp. But how fast and, and when uh, it's a little uncertain at the moment, but. You know, I, th I think it'll be somewhat similar to Shanghai, maybe a little bit slower. So I think we're probably going to take, you know, four quarters or so to kind of get to the point where that's, you know, really like huge volumes that, that are coming out of those. But um, yeah. that's okay. See, I, I differ. I think it'll be much slower ramping um, in Berlin and, and Austin versus Shanghai. I just think the, and it's not because there is a knock on Shanghai, on Berlin or Austin. It's more because, the work ethic in China is to me just appears from all this, this, the noise, the signal I've seen is just tremendous, you know? Um, so I, I just, uh, you know, I just think it's going to be twice as long of a ramp up perhaps in Austin and Berlin. That's my thought, but you know, we'll find out. And either way, you know, the Tesla will, will have a nice ramp, but uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder to what extent, though, that's, that's offset by some of the, you know, increasing automation and, and you know, some of the stuff that they've their learnings from. They've Shanghai learned. That, yeah. You know, and, and when they're setting these factories up, too, I mean, they, they would know that there is a very stark uh, labor cost difference between the, the different sites. And so to what extent do they try to optimize, um, you know, production to take more, more advantage of automation just to get the kind of yeah. average cost down? So. But then I you also have to look right at the regulatory general. differences too, right? Like, oh you know, gosh, like Germany I know they can mess. do anything. <laughs> yeah, Germany is such a mess. Imagine like <laughs> all the extra intricacies in the regulation within the factory, perhaps, you know, or Austin, not as much of OSHA a problem, rules probably. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in Austin so and I would just push back and say that's probably countering some of that, the, the advantages you mentioned, for example. But, I, you know, we'll see. I, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it is as fast as Shanghai. All right, let's do one more question. Um, let's see. This is from Scott Open Dries on Twitter. With the Lathrop factory scaling Megapack production, how long do you guys expect before Tesla's energy margins improve? We touched a little bit about the Tesla energy and batteries uh, recently um, in, the, in an earlier question. But Matt, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, having a dedicated factory is going to make a, a huge amount of difference. Um, I mean, because you can you can standardize the the, the mega packs in particular, um, which instead of just kind of oh we've got uh, you know an extra couple uh, megawatt hours of, of of packs or of uh, of cells, so let's like quickly put those into a mega pack and like kind of doing that, you know, in in the gigafactory in, in Nevada, like that's going to be drastically different um, output output and margin profile than a dedicated factory where all they do is mega packs. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that's going to have a, a pretty meaningful impact. But I mean, keep in mind, energy margins, they, they bounced around a little bit. But for the most part, they've been between like minus 10% and, and zero gross margins. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of think like on the hardware side, maybe they get to, to like 10 or 15. Um, but what I've always thought is, is the bigger opportunity is starting to do like energy as a service um where you're 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 taking advantage of this huge kind of fleet of deployed assets out there and uh not only doing like auto bidder which is i think what everybody thinks of but also layering in things like selling capacity um and this is like what um tesla had a a, a request into ERCOT, the the text the the texas grid operator to allow residential customers to kind of aggregate their resources together and, and sell into the wholesale market um, so that is a whole new revenue source, um, which 
is going to take a long time, I, I think, to kind of build up because you're going to have to go like state by state, country by country, region by region. It's, it's very fragmented. It's going to be very slow and cost prohibitive in a lot of areas to build that up. And, and frankly, even the margins on those services are going to be pretty small. But I think over time, mm -hmm. this is where, when I get bullish about the the energy business, I think of like 2030 or so when yeah. they, they've ramped up, they've got huge, you know, not only are they selling all these mega packs that say a 10% gross margin, but you've got 10 years of mega packs out there and you've got 10 years of solar roof production out there. So you've got this fleet of assets. And, and by that time, Tesla's kind of whittled away at these regulatory um, constraints that are prohibiting it from operating in all these regions. And so then what I think the opportunity is, is when you look at the cumulative fleet of assets that they're going to have, and you can you can make the, them all work in unison to provide valuable services to the grid and, and actually get paid from that. Um, even those margins are not going to be like crazy high, to be honest with you, from from all the modeling that, that I've done. Um, but to me, that's the, the energy opportunity that's more exciting um, is, is kind of like 2030 and beyond. I, I wouldn't really... Yeah. Like, I don't think they're going to turn the corner next year and all of a sudden it's going to be like, oh, they're contributing like $3 per share of, of earnings out of the energy business. It's not going to happen that soon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So we'll see. Um, all right. Well, uh, I see a comment from Boiled Down AH. Uh, I was looking at some of the comments. It mentions we're one, one month away from getting Q2 production. Of it. It's true. It's coming up fast. So let's just get this. I feel like I just want to get this Q2 production number behind us as fast as possible and just move forward to Q3, you know? So we'll see how the stock reacts. Um, you know, hopefully so, it's a selling the rumor, buying the news type of thing. We'll see. I was going to ask you, yeah. So Q2, um, is is it as bad as people are thinking it is or is it better or is yeah, it worse? That's my guess. My as guess bad? is this is bad. Yeah, 250 is my guess. Maybe 260 best case, but it could be as low as 240 is my guess. Uh, so, I, you know, I think China, Shanghai shutdowns really hurt. And, um, and earnings they, down accordingly, like in the like $2 range, something like that. Yeah, it'll still, yeah, it'll still be positive earnings, but uh, you'll see all kinds of headlines like Tesla slowing down or demand, you know, is demand a problem with order? You know, we'll see. It'll just be a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a FUD race there and uh hopefully i just want to get it behind us so we can focus on q3 and get to q3 numbers soon so that you know things look good again um because <laughs> the stock price trades a lot more on perception than fundamentals a lot of times so and right now it's trading on macro markets almost entirely and bad perception combined with you know elon selling shares twitter issues and all that so we'll see Things can should only get better from here once this number's behind us and and maybe it's already priced in. So, all right. Well, uh, next week uh, I will not be on again. I have a special uh, field trip all day field trip with my kindergartner son. I have to do, or I don't have to, but I really want get to, to do. do. So, yeah, I get to do. I'm excited. So, um, Matt, uh, you will have another guest host, uh, and we'll find out that will be soon enough and and uh yeah everyone have a great week and and we'll talk soon and uh yeah that's it for this week's episode thanks guys thanks everyone